You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. There is a place where time stands still, where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. I want my Really got All you've got to do now is the Australian culture Three simple questions, three correct answers, and together? you go through that doorway to the greatest little country in the world. Yeah, yes, you do. You can't just come to the greatest little country in the world, Australian culture on Australian film. And today uh, on Showreel with Annie, you're going to be treated to a great film that's just been incubating over the last few years called Defiant Lives. G'day, Sarah. How are you? Very well, thanks, Annie. Lovely to be here. Yeah. Now, Sarah Barton, you've had a long uh, involvement in disability politics, haven't you? I have, yes, yeah. I actually uh, made my first film about disability in 1994, which was a film called Untold Desires about sex and disability. Um, and that was the sort of beginning of it. And uh, then a few years later, my daughter was diagnosed with a disability and I felt like that was a bit of a pull back into uh, making some more stories around that. So I started No Limits on Channel 31. And uh, that was around 2002 or three. I can't quite remember. Got that set up. No Limits ran for about 11 or 12 years on Channel 31. So I got that started. And um, then... uh, Oh, and that was the incubation for many a a fine talent. It was, yes. Well, Stella Young most famously got her start um, at at, uh, No Limits, but also George Teleporis, Dr George, who's um, appeared on uh, the ABC's You Can't Ask That, and he's he's really, um, you know, quite a well-known face around town. And Carly Findlay also worked on, uh, did some uh, seasons of No Limits, and she's well-known now. Jared Marinon, who's uh, here at 3CR, he was on No Limits. Everyone who's anyone was on No Limits, so. Um, so that was a great piece, you know, it was really great to be a part of that. And then about uh, nine years ago now, I started working on a film about disability rights. I wanted to do something that was a little bit more overtly political. Um, although looking back, I think No Limits actually was quite political at times. Oh, it's, it's a bit like uh, Raising Our Voices on 3CR, which was yeah. a really uh, big deal to give voice to people who constantly are overlooked. Absolutely, yes. And for us, No Limits was really certainly about putting uh, people with disability on television so they could be seen and heard. And I always remember, never forget Stella Young saying to me, when she would, when she was first starting out on on TV, she would tell me stories of these horrible things that people would say to her. Just random strangers <laughs> in the street would say things like, you know, oh, if I was you, I couldn't live like that. I'd kill myself, and just like really awful stuff that people would say. And she said she really noticed a significant change in tone once she started doing No Limits. She said random strangers would come up to her and say, oh, wow, I've seen you on TV. I love your show. You're so cool, and you're so funny, and you're so funny, and all of that. So it really, really did make a difference. 
difference in the way um, disabled people were perceived. And also, I remember Jared saying to me once, he was quite young when we were doing the early episodes of No Limits, and he used to watch the show at home. And he said, for me, it was such a revelation seeing other people like me on TV. And it was a really important part of his um, development. So, you know, different people said different things, but I know that that show had a huge impact. And and Defiant Lives, which is the movie yeah, that that's is the one we're here to talk yeah, about, that we're, we're here to talk about, actually is on uh, is profound in a sense because it's actually looking at the politics over forty years. Yeah, of so if- of disabled people radically changing the perception society has of them. Yeah. Well, I sort of, you know, around the time I was doing No Limits, I knew that there was disability politics and disability activism because I knew people like Katie Ball. Katie Ball was a Melbourne activist who was very radical. She um, she died, I think, in 2003. But she was notorious and she was very um, prominent in doing tram protests. So I knew that those things had happened and I thought this must be part of a bigger movement and didn't take me long to look and see that, you know, there was a movement in America that was very strong and also a movement in the UK. And what happened was in 2010, I got a Churchill Fellowship, which, I mean, you know, as when you try and make a film like this, you just look for money wherever you can get it. And so the first little grant... And that, that was I, for research. Well, yeah, the first grant I got was from Film Victoria. So that got me started. And so then it was like, you know, well, whatever, what and other money is there? And you created a treatment at? and yeah. that fitted into one of their project yeah. slots. Well, no, they just, they just gave me development to develop the documentary and and then I got this little packet of money well it wasn't money it's a travel grant a Churchill fellowship to, to travel and it's like well okay I can make this an international film it would never probably have had the scope it had without the Churchill fellowship so instead of um, taking because it is an international story yeah absolutely it takes the it, it really looks at at Australia the US and the UK not not other important countries there were other countries where important things happened but for various reasons you know I wasn't able to come cover everything um so because um, how long is the film it's an 85 minute feature <laughs> film so it's you, you know, couldn't cover everything no no I mean I could have made a 13 part series if anyone had given me the money there's certainly enough story there yeah but you know that's that wasn't that's another happen. story yeah yeah so um so I went uh so I went to America and the UK and instead of taking a laptop like most Churchill fellows do I took my tripod my camera my lighting kit um and all my sound gear and I actually what, when I was travelling, I said, I'm recording my research because I sort of knew that I would never get another chance to go over there with a film crew. I so th- you've concluded I, yourself in this investigation? No, 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 no. It's not about me. I'm not that kind of a filmmaker. I right. don't, it, you know, I'm one of those people who likes to hide. The most you'll get of me is the, there's a one or two little questions in there that I couldn't sort of edit get out. Rid out. Get yeah, rid out. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not, a, I'm not a filmmaker where it's all about me. I, t- I really do, you know, I, I, I make tiny cameos, but I don't, um, don't make films about me. Uh, no, I do understand. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think <laughs> I can appreciate this. Look, I actually think it can be it can be very easy to put yourself in because that then provides the glue for the story. It's actually a lot harder to take yourself out. Yes, and to give and and also oh, because it's an investigation too. You can say this is why I asked this question. This is where I went with this. Yeah, you can. I mean, it's not, it's a valuable filmmaking tool. It's oh yeah, just absolutely. Not what you do. But I but it, what I wanted to give voice to disabled people. Yeah, um, I'm not a disabled person myself, and so although really, you are wearing glasses. Yeah, years ago, before the invention of, of glasses, um, you know, short-sightedness could have been considered as a disability. But now that we have glasses, it's not. You which know? is interesting in itself. Yeah, yeah. And really, the film is all about the social model, which basically says that it's the... Um, 
it's the absence of supports to allow disabled people to be part of society that cause the disability. So it's the absence of a ramp. It's the lack of a hearing loop or a you know translation for someone. Um, so they're the things that cause disability. Personal impairment is really only just a, a part of it. You know, um, you know, there sure there are times when um, you know a person might be suffering some ill health or ill effect at a personal level that means they can't go out on a certain day. But 90% of the time, it's actually um, that, you know, there isn't a ramp or there isn't accessible transport or, you know, that that the society is not catering for people with different needs. Yeah, um, we are on Solidarity Breakfast. Oh, sorry, we're not. You're on Showreel with Annie. I've got a cold. That's my only excuse on Showreel. And we're talking to Sarah Button about her film Defiant Lives. It's a recording and recognition of the historical process of disability politics, Uh, American, Australian, English. Uh, What um, having done some um, audio production around the politics of uh, disability from the point of view of disabled people, uh, I was really struck by the ferocity and uh, mental acuity of the people over this uh, length of time uh, as they attacked uh, the various elements of society's exclusion of their story. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the earliest elements that you covered in your film? Yeah, well, it's interesting you should say that because there were um, two really key activists who actually took a step back and really thought about the issues. Um, in the UK, uh, there was a guy who lived in an institution. His name was Paul Hunt. And there's very, very few pictures left um, of Paul, but his widow spoke to me um, in the film and she tells the story about how Paul was very engaged while he lived in the institution. He lived with a lot of um, – it was in the 1960s and so it was a time when the community was not accessible. There were no curb cuts. There were no accessible trains and trams. And so largely people lived in these institutions because they couldn't get around in the outside world. And so Paul was a very intelligent man who um, thought a lot about, um, you know, the the place of disabled people in the world. At some point when he was getting out of the institution a lot more and, and mixing a lot more at different um, organisations, that he and Judy, his wife, they met with another guy called Vic Finkelstein who was a wheelchair user and had come from South Africa and he'd been involved in the anti-apartheid struggle um, in South Africa and he'd been arrested a number of times. And the two men got together. Vic had an experience of radical leftist politics in the uh, in South Africa and Paul had this had deep thought about the, the place of disabled people and they came together and they really thought about what the issues were and it was their thinking and, and kind of ideas that became the basis of what was later called the social model of disability. Oh, that's fantastic, isn't it? When people say that uh, standing up and going on marches and voicing opinion, how it's a it's a useless activity. When you hear things like that, you realise just how what a catalyst it is. Absolutely, the yeah. p- the personal liberation. Yeah, 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 builds into something big, a bonfire. Yeah. How did they? Uh, where did they take it? Where did it go from there? Well, um, so so they formed an organisation called UPS, the Union of Physically Impaired Against Segregation. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, it's a great acronym. I love it because it's just it, like it doesn't. It's so non-catchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like UPS. Yeah. 
but you know that word segregation it really came yeah. out of that anti-apartheid struggle and it was very much focused on getting people out of institutions and so that was a sort of the, the sort of UK iteration of what we had in Victoria which was deinstitutionalization but that was sort of they, they were the origins there were other people too it wasn't just Paul and Vic there were many other no, people No but it's that idea it's the thinking you know yeah. that uh, people who are disabled have rights Oh, absolutely, yes. You know, institutionalising yes. people means that, you know, they're told when to go to bed, when, they, when they're allowed to get up. It's, well, of course, it's making people into children for the rest of their lives. But, of course, we're still institutionalising people in jails too yeah. often, you know, because there are so many disabled people, particularly people with intellectual impairment, who are, you know, imprisoned now because it's, an, it's a quasi-institution. But that's a story for another day and not one that I cover in Defiant Lives. Yeah, right, okay. But you went to America. I know that there's... one of of the things I noticed when I looked up some of these uh, key moments was that there are some feisty American female uh, disability activists and um, some of them are people who actually started able being they were able-bodied but then they became disabled. Yes, yes. Is that look, something you found? Uh, look, it's a real mixture, a mm. real mixture. I mean, one of the key leading women in the US who I've spoken to on the phone but I still haven't met yet um, is Judy Human. And Judy Human What a featured, great name. I know, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> and she was, she was, uh, she worked in the Obama administration, but of course she doesn't have a job now um, <laughs> under the other surprise, administration, surprise. he who shall not be named. Um, but Judy Human uh, features in archive in the film and her, her contribution is incredibly powerful and has been going on over decades and decades and decades. I don't make any real reference or um, discuss, you know, how people came to be disabled. I, I kind of the, – the film is very much about the politics and I made a very dis- deliberate choice as a filmmaker to not draw attention to people's impairment. So things like the way I frame the pictures, um, you know, not focusing on wheelchairs and and also not really getting people to discuss, you know, what their disability is because you know, it's That's actually not – That's not the issue. Relevant, it's not the issue. Where You Meant to Be, a film benefit for 3CR Radiothon, put on by the Sewer Show crew. Singer Aidan Moffat and friends travel Scotland, drinking in the roots of all folk tunes, featuring older balladeer Sheila Stewart. Showing upstairs at 3CR at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, on Friday, the 30th of June at 7 pm sharp. Popcorn supplied. $10, $5 concession. All welcome. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 9419 8377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Yeah, the secret's out. We haven't made our target. We still need $40,000. And uh, if you're listening to Showreel, Showreel hasn't met, reached its target either. So if you're feeling uh, magnanimous and a little bit financial, ring 94198377 and say, I'm going to give some money 
to Showreel to keep, make sure that Showreel continues talking about Australian film and that 3CR is continuing to be the radio for change. We're in the middle of a conversation with Sarah Barton about Defiant Lives, and I was really impressed by the notion that you were able to gather together a whole lot of archival footage. Can yes. you talk to that? Yeah, yeah. Well, the film's got uh, around 600 pieces of archive footage. In oh, it. wow. Oh, not, not all footage. There's photos as well. Yeah, so but... clear, clearing all of that was a monumental task Yeah. Um, and making sure that we got the rights for everything, um, which, you know, there's there's a, a tiny handful of things that we just could not track down who owned them. And, you know, we've got a little note at the end if you think that you've, you own you've something. that Yeah, but, but, I, but I think pretty much, you know, everything is um, is. Covered. So it was a huge task, but um, was really interesting because last year uh, there's a there's an organisation in America called ADAPT, and it's the sort of most radical sort of end of the disability rights movement. And they they really go out on the streets. They're out on the streets at the moment trying to say stop stop the cuts to Medicaid. Um, and you know people are getting arrested. It's you know exciting times for ADAPT in a bad way. Um, so, but ADAPT have always ADAPT have been going for quite a few decades now since. Uh, um, at least the 1980s, I think. And uh, they had a huge archive of all of the um, actions that they'd done and also of television media coverage that had been done of their actions. Um, so they would uh, send someone out with a handy cam, usually, you know, SVHS or something really brilliant like that, and, uh, and you know, collect footage of the actions that they did. But they would also go back to their hotel room each night and record all of the local TV broadcast news. And these are often like little small cable channels in kind of regional areas. Oh. And when we went back to... Um, so, go... so someone within that organisation was really media savvy. They were, they were. Um, but the interesting thing that had happened was that most of the, the broadcasters had had lost the footage. So really all we had was the adapt copies off the television. So we used it Which very... is actually quite a, a fabulous kind of... Um very postmodernist sort of approach. Right? Look, it's really interesting actually about the whole um, the the way the archive was collected, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But but um, so what happened was Adapt had all of this kind of SVHS footage recorded off the television, and we would go back to the broadcasters, and they would go, "Well, we don't have masters for that." Not all of them; some did, um, but you know, a lot of the footage was actually lost from the broadcasters. And so the fact that they had this collection, I had to go to Minnesota in um, February last year to view this collection like 700 I didn't look at 700 hours of footage but I spent a week there working through all of the footage that was in someone's house in snowbound minus 19 degrees Minnesota yeah. yesterday <laughs> last year and it's uh, it so weird for an Australian to be affected by weather like that oh yeah I so, I so didn't know it's how freaky. to do and you know often when you arrive somewhere you hire a car and it was just like no there's no way I'm driving on the wrong side of the road in the snow in my, you know, I would just die you yeah, know? Yeah, <laughs> so exactly I just right. made people drive me Literally. places because I, yeah, literally, because I don't, I have no skills and experience mm. in that kind of in that kind of climate. But it was it was fun to go there. It was you know really really in the middle of nowhere. I flew into Fargo and then drove north. <laughs> <laughs> That's it fantastic. was pretty wild, yeah. But the but the other thing I wanted to just say about collecting the archive, it's really, I've said this to a couple of people that, in fact, even though the film is a history film and it's about the past, I really believe that social media and the the way the internet is operating at this point of 
point in time is how this film was able to be made because of the social connectedness that we now have with other activists around the world and the footage that people are putting up on YouTube. YouTube can be your best friend and your worst enemy because people put stuff up there that they don't own the rights to. But you see something fabulous and then you spend three months trying to figure out who owns it. Um, But, you know, there's this sharing and this connectedness that we've never, ever had before was really a big, a really important part of being able to put together a film with 600 pieces of archive. There's so many questions I want to ask in relation to how you make a film like this. Like, did you, I mean, you said you did a treatment to begin with. Um, how did you, how did you, I mean, this is like story, uh, spinning story into gold. How, how did you formulate the structure? Well, look, the structure took a really, really long time because basically what I did, I just set off. I I did some research before I went on my fellowship, but only what I could do on the internet in 2010. Seven years is a long time in in internet land, you know. Uh, It's really progressed a lot since then. So I did some some rudimentary research, which was really about figuring out where I should go and who I should meet. Of course, once I got there, it's like, oh, you're not going to Denver? You know, It's like, I didn't know I needed to go to Denver. Denver. Denver's where ADAPT was founded. It's a Really important part of the story. I've got footage from there, but but I didn't go because I didn't know I had to go. Um, so that was it. Was kind of an evolving kind of process, actually making the film. But then when we got into the edit, that was when things got really challenging. So we we put it we put a really good. Um, a, a teaser reel together for Screen Australia to get the final bit of money on from yeah. Screen Australia. But then once we got that, we we really we went through fourteen rough cuts. So oh, that was wow. fourteen structural rough yeah. cuts. We showed it a couple of times to our peers, you yeah. know, to get their feedback, which is a brutal process yeah. because you really want them to tell you what's wrong with it, and they did. Um, so, so you know, often with this kind of narrative, uh, they go in. I mean, we don't have enough time. There's so many things I want to ask you about <laughs> uh, characters. Do you use characters as a way of getting us through all this kind of? Everyone who's in the film is a, is there because they're they're a character and they're able to tell a story. Yes. But the film is probably less character driven than most films. It's yeah. really very much ideas driven, right. so and theme theme driven. So because well, there, yeah. there are a lot of people in the film. So well, there's a lot of stuff. And I was going to say one of the things I really want to ask you about is there are a couple of really fantastic actions that happen in Australia. Yes, the one about uh, the um, beauty contests. That was just a fantastic one. Well, that's highlighted in yeah. the film, yeah. And, and the one about um, uh, the uh, train stations with yeah. uh, Ran going there saying, you know, but why should people be there, you know? Well, interestingly, we really loved that bo- that Bondi Junction um, protest. Is a, um, it's classic. A, it is a classic one, but we couldn't make it fit in the film really sadly. Oh, well. So someone else will have to tell that story in a bit more detail. But it was basically that they built the Bondi Junction, um, you know, in what's it called hub it's not it wasn't a train station it was like it was a, bus a hub interchange yeah. the bus but interchange, they lived out but it was completely inaccessible that's right and so disabled people turned up to protest and it's the footage is vivid and fantastic um but you know when you're trying to structure a global story of disability rights yeah. and activism yeah. it's got to t- it's got to hold the audience and w- there was just no way we could make it fit which i'm really there's so m- much great footage that we weren't yeah. able to use but the cleverness of the actions yes and how profound i mean the yeah. thing about the miss australia yeah. um, I mean, there were so many things wrong about the Miss Australia com- competition. Having watched it as a little kid in a country town, I used to think there was something wrong with it. Little, I mean, because it was boring. Yeah. But, <laughs> but when I saw what they'd done with it in terms of uh, making it clear that it was 
so many things were wrong with it from a disability point of view. How wonderful that yeah. was. Well, there were, there were charity events and telethons and pageants all around the world and we and certainly Defiant Lives does tell that story of how the, the charity model was became really on the nose because of the way they treated disabled people in order to raise money that often didn't really go to improving people's lives. It went to medical research and, and other things often. Not always, not, not so with the Miss Australia Quest, but at the same time... You know, but it the was, whole idea of it. Yeah, the idea of the Miss Australia Quest was just like it reminds me of the Harold Holt swimming pool. Yeah, no. <laughs> wrong, so, wrong, wrong. And I mean, we we are really coming to the end of the program, but uh, so we should actually tell people that Divine Lives has got a quite a, a, a fabulous. Um, uh, screening schedule. We have look. We're, we're using a thing called Demand Film, which is basically people need to pre-book their tickets. The tickets you can go to the website defiantlives.com and click on cinema screenings. And basically, if you see a screening near you that you'd like to go to, book your ticket in advance because we have to make a confirmation a week out from the screening as to whether it's viable or not. So if only two people buy tickets, we cancel that screening and we move it to another another one. Um, if you don't see a screening near where you you are and you'd like to perhaps host one or promote one then you can request a screening that takes a few days for the demand film people to go and you know uh, line up the cinema and everything and then we put that screening up and it's great to work with partners organizations groups who can actually promote the film and bring people so it's like crowdsourcing cinema screenings which is a really powerful way to get people to see the see films and it's a powerful way to get people to see films that wouldn't normally be seen in cinemas and it's a great experience in the cinema because the soundtrack is gorgeous it's in surround sound you know you've got all this sort of old archival footage but the sound is great so it is really worth seeing in a cinema so um you know but but people need to buy their tickets in advance they need to plan ahead which is a little bit you know not what we do these days but it's worth it so it's uh, demand.com no the film the the, our website is defiantlives.com if you want to go straight to the demand site it's um demand.film yeah okay so you can see how that works but you can also get to it from our website, yeah, yeah, you can yeah. see the trailer for the film there too. And the, and there's and it's all beginning on the. We start on the seventeenth of July, so the first screening I think is uh, I can't remember where it is, but we've Dendy got one... Cinemas Newtown. Yes, and then we've got Sydney. one at the Jam Factory in Melbourne on I think the next day, the eighteenth of July. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I've got the information. Yeah, and there's one in Geelong. We've got one already up there in Geelong for local people and we will put more up um, as we get requests around Melbourne, but we're trying to get that jam factory one over the line. I mean, it's a fabulous activist story. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think 3CR listeners will really Really? relate to it. And it's not just for people with an interest in disability because it actually feeds into that whole idea of activism and And change. And and change, Yeah. yeah. It's really powerful. Thanks for coming in, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. And we're going to go out with... The best story, uh, best song from uh, Joy Bell and uh, the others who turn up your radio. I don't want you at home anymore. I 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.